we have gathered this morning for a phase of our worship that is a ritual commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ for the church to celebrate in his name, the only one. But it is a celebration that has great significance. It is not just something that people celebrate for the sake of celebration. This has a deep spiritual impact and should have one on every believer because of what the Lord indicated. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So to remember him, there are two elements involved in this remembrance. The first, of course, is the bread which we says signifies that the believer belongs to the church of Christ, his body. So when we partake of that bread, we are actually affirming that we are part of his body. The other is the cup, which shows by his death on the cross, and so signifies that we share in the blessings of his death on the cross, including the forgiveness of our sins. So that if you are an unbeliever and you partake of this, it means nothing. It has no meaning for you. But if you are a believer and you are not careful in celebrating this, then you bring yourself under great condemnation. Because it is something that is supposed to say, I am a believer. I am looking forward to the Savior coming back. So I celebrate with my fellow believers under one table. And failure to do that brings this condemnation where it says in 1 Corinthians 11.27 Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who Eats and drinks without recognizing the body of, of the Lord. Eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick. And a number of you are falling asleep. That is to say there are people who think this is a simple thing. And they partake of it as believers. And they go home sick. And some, the apostles say some of you have even died. So that tells us this is a very serious occasion. And therefore, since it's a serious occasion, it requires deep reflection. And part of that reflection is to examine your soul to ensure that there's nothing in you that is displeasing to the Lord as you celebrate. What that means is, if it's anything that you know, you admit it. Once you admit it, even those that you didn't know, will be cleansed because of the God's faithfulness. The death of Christ covered all our sins. So if we just remember one, name it, before him, acknowledge before him, he cleanses us. For that reason, we'll spend some time preparing for our celebration. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this privilege that your Son afforded us to remember him. We pray that as we celebrate that God the Holy Spirit will give us the ability to think and focus upon him. So that in every way, all honor and glory will belong to him. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. Like I, I think uh, they already done the, the thing for you, lifted it up, or you just have to pull it back. I appreciate that. So it's, it should be easier now. In the night, just before our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread. After offering thanks, he says, eat, this represents my body. Again, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the privilege of continuing to celebrate this occasion. We do pray that uh, as we begin to celebrate the cup, that God the Holy Spirit will also focus our thinking on your Son, Jesus Christ. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen. We will pause a little bit just to, for you to uh, think a little bit before we partake of the cup. Okay, we leave the lower one. In the same fashion, Allow to the cup after offering times, say, drink from it, all of you. cross. And please stand.
In the first session, we reviewed what we studied last week. First of all, we indicated that the third responsibility that we have regarding this, the message of 1 Corinthians 10 uh, verses 23 through chapter 11 verse 1 is that uh, you should follow Apostle Paul's example in, of the use of freedom that he himself patterned after that of Christ. So, we indicated that implies that you should be concerned with the spiritual welfare of other people rather than your freedom in Christ. Before the apostle issued the command that is the basis of the third uh, responsibility, he used or issued a command in verse 32 where he said, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. So we say that um, we are, should be concerned to avoid anything that gives offense or causes someone to stumble. So we looked at three ways we can do that. The first is not to judge a fellow believer because of something the scripture does not really say it's sinful, but left to the conscience of each person to use. It doesn't mean it's sinful. The second thing that we have to do is to refrain from use of our freedom that will cause a believer problem. And uh, we use the issue of alcohol to illustrate that, though it's not sinful, but if that's going to cause your fellow believer to have problem, the weaker believer, then you avoid it. The third thing that we considered is to avoid anything that will humiliate a believer. And we looked at two things, two examples from the scripture. The first one had to do with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. That is, of course, in the, at the, that time is preceded by the love feast. So there were those who were wealthy. They mistreated the poorer ones by denying them food. That's one way that uh, people give offense. The second way that we looked at is favoritism. And we indicated that... Uh, it is improper to show favoritism to believers who come to a local church because of their appearance or so forth, or because of their position or their wealth, or whatever it is, or lack of it, that when we do that, we give offense to those who are believers in Christ. Now this we follow by the third thing that was uh, the, the uh, next thing we said applies to the church of Christ, which is that we must do everything not to bring division to the church of Christ. Anything that's going to bring about division in a local church, then avoid it. Now, of course, we look at that the opposite of not offending is pleasing. And so, we saw that the apostles said that he did that because he said 
he reads what he said is, I try to please everybody in everywhere. So the apostle, of course, meant that he would do things not sinful in order to please the three groups mentioned in the context, the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Church of Christ. And he would do that. And so the apostle conveyed that before he even gave their command to follow his example, he said in verse 33, For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. And I indicated that that the literal Greek really reads, Not seeking my own advantage, but the of the many. And then before the break I said, we, the apostle could have used a finite verb, but he did not. He used a participle in the Greek, which is, if you render it the way it is in the English, most people will just read through it, and will not see the point that the apostle made by not using a finite verb, but a participle. And the reason is, he wants to show that when he says, I please, then seeking, that word seeking means there is a connection between pleasing and seeking. And so the question we asked before the break, what's that connection? Otherwise he could have just said, I please everyone and stop right there. But when he says seeking, using a participle in the Greek, that means there's something he wants us to catch. That just reading through it in the English, one will not possibly understand or see that connection. So the connection is this. There are two possible ways of seeking, seeing when it is a participle, an action is involved. But that action must be related to the first one. The first one of pleasing. So there are two possibilities of how to interpret the, the action involving seeking. The action associated with the word seek, uh, uh, seeking may be a reason the apostle pleased others so that to fully translate his action into the English will require the use of the word because or for. In other words, I seek, I mean I please others because that would be the uh, implication. Now this seems to be the interpretation followed by the translators of the NIV or that they meant that what the apostle wrote explains his action of pleasing others since they use the word for that could be used either to provide a reason or to provide an explanation to something preceding. Because the analogy says, for I am not seeking my own good. Therefore, is what we're saying, it could be that they use it to provide an explanation or a reason. Now, a second possible interpretation is to consider the participle to be used to describe the manner of the apostle's action of pleasing others. In effect, that a participle the apostle used answered the question of how 
the apostle went about pleasing others. Now so while the interpretation of reason makes sense, that because there is an implied reason uh, that we'll get to shortly in the last clause when it says so that they may be saved. That clause will get to indicate reason. So based on that we believe that the apostle was concerned with providing the manner of pleasing others. In other words, he say, when he says, I am not uh, seeking of the NIV, I'm not seeking my own good, the apostle is saying, I strive to please others by. That's the means. How you do that? So that's why we say, that's what the apostle intended, otherwise he would have just used a finite verb. He's trying to say, yes, by what I do, so that uh, our interpretation then implies that instead of the translation of the NIV, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, the Greek should be translated by not seeking my own good, but the good of many. So I try to please how? By seeking not my own good, but the good of others. That's what would have been lost if we just translated the way it is. Or even leave it literally. So that we do not see that the connection there is the apostle is telling us how he tries to please. How he does that. It's not seeking his own good, but that of the others. So in any case, the manner of the apostle pleasing others is given in the verbal phrase, not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Now the word seeking is translated from a, a Greek word that may mean to seek, to look for, in order to find. Now it may mean to strive for, or to aim, or try to obtain, or to even desire something. So the word may mean to request, to demand, or to ask for, as it is used by Apostle Paul to justify his threat of punishing the offenders incurring during his visit to them, as recorded in Second Corinthians chapter thirteen, verse three. Second Corinthians. Chapter 13, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3 reads, Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but he is powerful among you. So the word may mean then to devote serious effort to realize one's desire or objective. Hence, the Greek word means, again, to strive for, to try to obtain, or even to aim. As the word is used in describing Timothy's devotion to the affairs of the Philippians believers in Philippians chapter 2 verse 21.
Philippians chapter 2 verse 21. It is for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Look out for his own interests, but that's not true of Timothy. In our passage of 1 Corinthians 10.33, the word is used with the meaning to seek in the sense of to strive for one's own advantage or to try to reach something one desires. So the Greek reveals that the action of seeking in this specific verse is one that the apostle repeats frequently when faced with pleasing others. So the point is that the apostle has a mindset that reveals that pleasing others requires being concerned about what benefits them instead of the one who seeks to please. In other words, when you are trying to please others, you are not thinking about yourself. You are thinking about that person that you are trying to please. So it's for this reason that the apostle strives for, or what he strives for is described with the word good. Because it says, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Now the word good here is really translated from a Greek word that is not the usual word for good, but a Greek word that appears only twice in the New Testament. In our present verse and in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 35 that we have already studied. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 35. There, of course, that's the context of marriage. He says, I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now the Greek word means advantage or benefit. Although in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 33, it is used with the meaning purposeful advantage. Purposeful advantage. That is an advantage often for the achieving of a particular end. So the apostle's point is that he is not concerned with seeking his own advantage when he wants to please people. Now this does not mean that the apostle does not seek something that is beneficial to him, for he did. Since we have argued that the apostle was concerned with spiritual matters concerning those he wants to please. So we are saying that the apostle certainly was concerned about his own spiritual well-being and that he seeks that also for his own spiritual well-being. He does that. Look for it. But when he wants to please others, he will be more concerned about their own spiritual well-being at that instant than in any benefit that is due him, such as using his own freedom in Christ to do whatever he knows to benefit him that's not sinful. So in any case, 
when the apostle stated in 1 Corinthians 10 33, I am not seeking my own good. He means there are at least two things he was not concerned. There are at least two things. Because when we say, I'm not seeking my own good. Remember the issue is, when you are trying to please other people, you're not thinking about what's going to benefit you. If you're doing that, then you become self-centered at that instant. So when you're thinking about how to benefit other people, you're thinking about them and not what benefits you. So we're saying that the apostle was not concerned with certain things, two things in particular. The first one, he was not concerned with his material benefit. His material benefit. Now this, he had made clear to the Corinthians, since he had conveyed to them, that he did not use his right of material support as an apostle from them. Instead, he preached the gospel to them free of charge. As we've already looked at and studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 12 and verse 18. 1 Corinthians verses 12 and verse 18. First, verse 12 reads, If others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Drop to verse 18. Verse 18 says, What then is my reward? Justice. That in the preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. And so, not make use of my right in preaching it. God was started in detail. It doesn't mean he wasn't supported because he received support from other local churches. They just, for the purpose of what he was doing, he didn't receive any from the uh, Corinthians. Now another thing, the apostle was not concerned. I mean, the first one again is he wasn't concerned with material benefit. The second thing he wasn't concerned with is human praise or honor. As he conveyed clearly to the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians chapter two, verse sixteen. First Thessalonians, oh no, First Thessalonians chapter two, verse six. Sorry. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse six reads: We are not looking for praise from man, nor from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a body to you. So these two things that we have mentioned, material benefit, honor or praise, concerns ourselves whether you know, it's something that we all are concerned with one way or the other, whether we admit it or not. I'm saying that we humans are normally or generally concerned with material things 
and recognition by others. The very thing the apostle stated he was not concerned with. Of course, there is really a third thing that humans, for, for the most part, for the most part, not everyone, for the most part, there are things, the third thing that humans concern themselves with is right relationship with God. That's the third thing. So the apostle will not exclusively be concerned with this. By this we mean that he will not, I mean he will be concerned about his own relationship with the Lord. But that does not mean he was focused on himself without being concerned with others. As it pertains to their spiritual benefits, since he, his ministry was devoted to helping others spiritually. So anyway, when the apostle stated in 1 Corinthians 10.33, I am not seeking my own good. He implies then that he was not occupied with selfish ambition. He ensured that he was not a stumbling block to the faith of believers and certainly not a stumbling block to unbelievers in such a way to do anything that will keep them from accepting the gospel message. Now we know that the apostle could not possibly be a stumbling block to any person's faith because of what he stated in Second Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3. Second Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3. It is we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. So the point is that the apostle was not concerned with seeking his own advantage or benefit per se. In contrast, the apostle was concerned with the benefit or advantage of others. As that is what is meant in the phrase of the NIV of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 33 that we are starting when it says, But the good of many. Now the phrase, the good of many of the NIV, and that of many of our English versions, although good English, but it hides a relevant point the apostle probably intended to convey in the phrase. Now in my judgment, even the uh, translation of the today's English version that reads, the good of all, the good of all, to me makes the matter worse because it implies that the apostle's concern was for everyone in absolute sense. Now that aside, the Greek literally again reads, the of the many. The of the many. Now the primary difference between the translation of the NIV and the literal translation that we gave is the use of the definite article before the word many. Look at the NIV, it says the good of many. But I'm, look at of the many. 
Now the apostle uses uh, article for a purpose that is not obvious in the English versions that are muted in translation. Now this is not to say that the those English versions such as the New American Standard Bible and the Lexham English Bible that translated the definite article so that the phrase reads of the many that they convey the silent point of the Holy Spirit through the apostle but at least such translation will cause a reader to wonder why the apostle used the definite article when a smoother English will just say many instead of the many now it is our contention that the apostle used the definite article to communicate that he was thinking of specific individuals that he called the many not everyone on this planet now those are things that you know, people read the Bible and just go through but this is this, they are silent. That's what I call silent. Those hidden. But they are you know, up there for somebody to understand it. But if you just read through it, you just go your way. But here, that word be becomes so important. So the, through uh, the apostle, as a general principle, would want to please everyone that he comes into contact with. Because of his uh, limited knowledge of election. In other words, he doesn't know the election status of anyone that he encounters. Just like you and I don't. That's why I believe those who uh, say because of election that they don't do much witnessing, they're wrong. We don't know who is of the elect. You just give the gospel because you don't know. No one, you know, somebody don't pass you and you see a mark on their face and that's an elect. We don't know that. For that reason, we just keep the gospel. So that's what I'm saying the apostle. Uh, he didn't know. So he couldn't be thinking of a particular uh, person and therefore well, I wouldn't talk to the other people. No, he doesn't. So uh, because of that, the truth of the matter though is when he literally wrote the many, he was thinking, particularly thinking of the elect of God. The elect of God. They are the ones that he wants to please and seek what benefits them. Now the idea of thinking of the elect of God would elude anyone who reads the phrase in the NIV without the definite article. So anyway, we contend that the apostle used the definite article here. Because he was thinking primarily of the elect as those he was concerned to please and to benefit. Of course, it is a context that enables us to be certain that the apostle was thinking of the elect since he used the definite article with the word many to refer both to all humans and elect. So we do see him use a phrase, the Greek phrase, that is translated many, but literally to the many. He used a phrase in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. 
Romans. Now, that's this kind of thing is the things that, uh, again, when you read through the Bible, you don't pick those things up. Very rarely, unless you are actually studying under uh, the power of the Spirit and have some kind of background to do so. And more importantly, that you have the gift to do so. Look at what it reads here. Romans 5 verse 19 reads, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Now here, see, the first use of the phrase, the many, refers to all humans. All humans. Since all humans are sinners. But the second use of the phrase, the many, refers to the elect. Since not all humans are in good standing with God or put with, with him in the right relationship. That is, the words of the NIV made righteous. That this was made righteous can only apply to the elect. It doesn't apply to every human being. So even in the same verse, you see, the many, the many. One meaning, um, everyone. The second meaning, limited to the elect. So these are the kind of things that we have to uh, look through in studying the, the scripture. Anyway, that the apostle was concerned primarily with the elect is given in his purpose of pleasing others and seeking their own, which is their salvation. Now here again, these are things that uh, people will say, well, I don't see election there. Where, where did he get that? She says, why is he like there? He doesn't say that. But what I've explained to you makes you realize there's no other way. And even what I showed you here in Romans, somebody's arguing, say, okay, if the many are sinners, why are the many not all saved? So that <laughs> gives us that uh, concept. Anyway, but it is what the apostle wrote next that helps us to recognize he was talking about the, about the elect. Now, what is what he write next? Look at verse 33 that we're studying. Look at that. It says, so that they may be saved. See, that's what gives us an assurance. We're, we're right that he's talking about the elect. Now, this clause, no doubt, helps us to understand that the apostle's concern was the spiritual benefits of others. In fact, the clause conveys that the good of others, the apostle seeks, is their eternal salvation. So anyway, there is a tendency for many of us to think of the word saved in only one way, which may or may not be right, depending on the context. So we need to explore that word saved a little bit. Now it is translated from a Greek word sozo, sozo, that is used in a physical or a spiritual sense. Now in a physical sense, it may mean to preserve or to rescue 
from natural dangers and afflictions. Hence, to save, to keep from harm, to rescue. Now, so to save in a physical sense may mean to heal, to heal. That is to rescue, of course, from the torment of disease or to be restored to health, as the word is used of the lost uh, Jesus relieving a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years, as stated in Matthew chapter 9, verse 22. Matthew chapter 9 verse 22 Jesus turned and saw her Take heart daughter he said your faith has healed you and the woman was healed from that moment Now that sentence your faith has healed you is literally from the Greek, your faith has saved you. Now, the literal translation, your faith has saved you, may imply that there is a physical healing, as well as a spiritual healing. However, the focus is on physical healing. Now, to save may also mean to keep from dying. As in the instruction of uh, Paul to the centurion, taking him and uh, others to Rome for him to stand trial, he instructed the centurion not to allow the sailors to abandon the ship. As we read in Acts chapter 27 verse 31. Acts chapter 27 verse 31. It is Acts 27 verse 31 reads, Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And he's not talking about their salvation. It means you cannot be delivered from what's coming. Now to save may mean to deliver them, that is to bring us safely from a situation fraught with mortal danger. So that the word is used to describe Israel's deliverance from Egypt in Jude 5. Now this is one of those reasons why we have to look at the the range of meanings of Greek word. Because there are people who go to this passage and say, Aha, see, that's a proof you can lose your salvation. Right here. Why? Look at what it says. Uh, Jude 5 means uh, just one chapter. So verse 5. Look at what it says. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Now, if you use 
the King James Version, the old one. See the sentence, the Lord deliver his people, they translate more like, having saved the people. So somebody say, well, if God saved people and then destroyed them, then that means you can lose your salvation because they, they, they're saved. But he destroyed them. But that's not the meaning. And I mean, sometimes uh, you, you just be patient and let the Holy Spirit walk through people. Because you argue and explain that to somebody, they just, they say, no, he says that. How can you get around that? He say, saved. But now, so you just smile, and uh, sometimes it takes a while, and uh, I've, uh, the Lord has shown me that several times. Whereas in one case, it took about five, six years, and in another case, it took somebody about three years to get, to get around to what I explained about you don't lose your salvation. Because they just can't get away from this, somebody like a, a person like Jude here. So he said, you can't explain. I said, what? And they say, well, if that's what the Greeks say, why didn't they translate it that way? And well, you see, it's one of the meaning. The Greek was so means to say it. But it has other meanings. Therefore, is when we go to the other meanings that we know uh, what we are studying. Anyway, the issues, in a spiritual sense, though, the word may mean then to save or preserve from transcendent danger or destruction. Hence, to save or preserve from eternal death. With the implication then of being preserved from judgment and from all that might lead to eternal death. For example, sin is one of those. And it's the main one, really. It is in this sense that the word is used when Apostle Paul offered eternal salvation to the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Acts 16, verse 31. Hold on to Acts. Acts 16, verse 31 reads, They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So this salvation here, saved here, it has to do with eternal uh, salvation, or to be saved in a spiritual sense. It is, of course, in the spiritual sense of being delivered, or rescued from sin, and the consequent eternal death, that the word is used in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 33. It is in a spiritual sense. Now Apostle Paul knew that not everyone would be saved. Even quite early in his ministry, he conveyed to the Gentiles that only those who are elect will be saved as implied in the commentary of the Holy Spirit through Luke, the author, human author of Acts, as we read in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. 
He reads, when the, Gentile, when the Gentiles had this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. See, that's, that phrase, appointed for eternal life, is one that describes the elect of God. Since the phrase may also be translated, chosen for eternal life. That instead of saying appointed for eternal life, it can be translated chosen for eternal life. So the apostle was aware that not everyone will be saved, but only the elect. So they were the ones that he was mostly concerned. Now as we implied, the apostle does not know who the elect was, so he preached the gospel to everyone with the intention that the elect will hear it and be saved. As he stated in Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 10. Again I emphasize that those who uh, say they, they don't put too much evangelism because they say well if you're the elect you'll be saved. No, you will be saved for sure. But God wants the gospel message to be given so that the election become real. It become made certain by the time they believe. So we read here, Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 10 reads, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Now notice what we call them, the elect. But then look at the next thing. That they too may obtain salvation. That means at that point they haven't obtained salvation yet. So that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That is to say that you are an elect. It's not something automatic that you'll be saved. I mean you will eventually be saved, but just being that you elect doesn't mean you're already saved. There still have to be faith. That's part of that God's plan. So if you have the elect, some way, somehow, you make that gospel to you. You bring the gospel so you can now believe and fulfill the link between uh, faith and actual salvation. Now so, the apostle made this point that he realized that not everyone will be saved. So anyhow, the apostle had indicated his, that his concern for salvation of others uh, overrides his use of his freedom in Christ. Now that's something very important that I trust that all of us come to that point. To know that nothing is as important as ensuring that someone goes to heaven. Nothing is as important as that. So you, you should be able to suffer any kind of deprivation or whatever it takes to get the gospel to somebody else. Because you don't know if you do that individual that God has designed, that through you, this person will hear the gospel. So, think about whatever you do, it should be out of your mind. Is the Lord giving me this final opportunity for this person? And so you give the gospel. You tell them about the Savior and how they get saved. <coughs> so, it is, if we really... I don't know about you, but uh, for me, 
it's always painful. Certain point of the day, for me, almost every day, this comes to my mind. The fact that somebody, some people, will be in the lake of fire. It just blows my mind. And I, I mean, all I can say is, Lord, thank you for whatever reason you cho- choose a little ant like me to be saved. But just the idea that somebody is going to be there forever in such a horrible situation with no possibility of coming out. It just blows my mind. It just, it keeps me going in one way. And of course, that's one of those reasons that I don't really care. Like I've said many times, what people think about what I teach or don't teach. If you don't like it, that's your business. It's between you and the Lord, not me. But I got to do what I'm called to do. So this is the reason why if you have that feeling, if you have that burning in you, I don't know if I'm the person to give this gospel to that person. Then you do it. You put aside every other thing. Whatever thing that will make you oh, be apprehensive, put it aside. Because you want the gospel given. That's what Paul is saying. I'm thinking of the benefit of others. So it don't matter. I suffer whatever it is because I want to please in the sense of them going to heaven. So anyway, the apostle had indicated that his concern for the salvation of others overrides his use of his freedom in Christ. It's for this reason then that he gives the command that is the basis of the third responsibility that we stated, which is you should follow Apostle Paul's example of use of freedom that he patterned after that of Jesus Christ. Now the command of the apostle for the Corinthians and so to all believers to follow his, uh, his imitation of Christ is then given in 1 Corinthians where we're studying 11 verse 1. Look at verse 1. It says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Now, by the way, this verse is still concerned with what the apostle wrote in the preceding verses, that it should be considered a part of the 10th chapter instead of the 11th, so that the chapter division here is not good. It's not a good one. Now, bearing in mind that the division of Bible books into chapters is not part of the inspired uh, scripture, but work of scholars in an attempt to help us locate sentences in each uh, book. As somebody says, gives you the street address, gives you the street number. I mean, these are things that help us. So we're grateful for the scholars for doing that. But sometimes, they do go either incomplete or two, uh, go something that's not correct. And this is one of those. And I'm saying that 11 verse 1 should be moved to verse 33 or May 34. Because it's still dealing with the same thing. Anyway, that aside, literally the Greek reads, Be imitators of me, just as I also of Christ. Now, this is because the word follow of the NIV is translated from a Greek verb that may mean to be with emphasis on 
one being what one was not before. So this verb is followed in the Greek by a Greek noun, mimetes. Mimetes. That means imitator. Imitator. That is a person who copies the words or behavior of another. Now the apostle used a present tense in the Greek regarding the Greek verb used so that the sense here is for the believer to repeatedly be imitators of the apostle or follow his example. Now the apostle was not being arrogant in commanding others to imitate him or follow his example. I know many people Believers, pastors, they are very nervous about that. And they rightfully so. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. No, he was, Apostle Paul here, wasn't arrogant. He was in his faith telling others that he is a kind of preacher who lives what he preaches. To, to me, if anything else, I mean, the whole thing about ministry is scary to me. But one of those things that scares me is what Paul wrote here. Can I stand here and teach you? And live the other way around? That's the scariest thing. That's the most challenging thing for me. So this is what Paul wasn't being arrogant. But in this case, he was just commanding people to do what he does. Now this he did himself by imitating Christ. So the question is to determine in what way he imitated Christ. There are at least certainly many ways in which the apostle imitated Jesus Christ. But in the context of the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, there were two ways the apostle imitated the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is not trying to please self for the benefit of others. The Lord Jesus is described as not pleasing himself to benefit us, the ones that are now his children. In Romans chapter 15 verse 3. Romans Chapter 15, verse 3. Romans 15, verse 3 reads, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insulted you have fallen on me. So Jesus Christ did not live on this planet to please himself, but to help us by dying on the cross for our sins. So the apostle certainly imitated the Lord Jesus Christ in this respect. It's for this reason that he wrote the passage that we, uh, verse we already finished studying, which is verse 33. Now another thing, the apostle, uh, another thing about Jesus Christ though, that the apostle imitated is Jesus' willingness to give up his right as God to take on human form to bring salvation to us according to 
Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 7. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 7. He reads, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So this specific verse, really that is concerned, with the Lord Jesus giving up his right as God, so to say, is the sentence, verse 6, look at this, it says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. We've gone that in detail, so go online, look at it, and Philippians studies. Now in this sentence, Apostle Paul meant to convey though that although Jesus Christ is his uh, is his pre-incarnate state in his pre-incarnate state is God he was willing to hold not to hold on to the rights as God in order to come into this world to die for our sins so he understood that Christ himself understood that taking on human form will mean what it will mean while on this planet so he would temporarily have to depend on the provisions of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit instead of his own right as a second member of the Godhead. So Apostle Paul imitated the Lord Jesus Christ in giving up his right to be married and his right to be supported by the Corinthians in order to communicate God's word to them. The Apostle addresses two rights in the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 9 particularly verse 15 First Corinthians 9 verse 15 where he reads but I have not used any of these rights and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast so the two examples of Jesus Christ that the apostle imitated are primarily what he wanted the Corinthians and so all of us believers to imitate him because he imitated Christ. Therefore, your responsibility in imitating the apostle is that you should strive not to be so concerned about pleasing yourself that you do not please others for the purpose of helping them spiritually. In effect, your personal pleasure should be secondary to helping fellow believers spiritually or helping unbelievers to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Similarly, you should not hold on to any right that you have so as to hinder the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ or the advancement of the teaching of God's word. We should not be caught up with the idea of freedom that we forget that we are here to please the Lord Jesus Christ and so to be willing to forgo our freedom in Christ if that meant that we could reach a soul with God's word. So as we end, 
this passage then let me remind you of the overall message that we have studied which is use your freedom in Christ in such a way to advance the spiritual needs of others now this of course led to three responsibilities the first is you should understand that not everything you have right to do helps others spiritually but you are required to seek the good of others the second is you should understand that your use of your freedom is not absolute so you need to adjust its application and finally you should follow the apostle's example of use of freedom that he patterned after that of Jesus Christ let's pray as we close our study this morning there may be someone here or someone listening over the internet but you don't know yet your state with the Lord Jesus Christ that is to say you don't know if you die now whether you go to hell now if you're that kind of person the fact that you are hearing what you have heard and what you'll be about to hear implies that God has love for you it is his love and his plan that you hear this truth and that truth is how much he loves you the love he has for you is unimaginable so it is that love that caused the son of God to leave heaven and to come to this planet to take in a human form knowing he will be cursed spite at everything that people would do that's horrifying that can be done to a human being he knew all of those were coming because it's a part of the planner yet because he loves you so much he doesn't want you to go to hell because that's what he created for those who reject him he doesn't want you and that's why you're here today and so if you are such a person the good news is it doesn't matter how you have failed it doesn't matter what your sins have been when Christ went to that cross he took them and he paid for all of them and that's why in the end he said it is finished in other words he has finished paying for your sins so whatever is left whether you go to heaven or hell it all depends on whether you trust Jesus Christ as the one who paid for your sins if you believe in him you will escape God's judgment that's why the command is issued believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved what are you going to believe again the Bible says these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God believing in him you have life through his name so believe in him and you will escape eternal damnation on the other hand, if you say, well, I don't want to, or you say, well, I don't think yet, I'll think about it, my friend, tomorrow is not guaranteed to you. The next minute is not even guaranteed to you. So this is the day of salvation. Now that you've heard of it, believe in him and escape God's wrath. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will challenge us to understand all that you have communicated to us as to how our freedom in Christ is to be utilized. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.